You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Freedom of movement, the right to privacy. Both are concepts you've probably thought about a little bit differently since the lockdowns and civil liberty intrusions that started in 2020 even farther back if you really think about it. Well, our friends at privacypost.io have you covered of something that you're probably going to want to know about if you value both of those things. Privacypost.io is a privacy-by-default virtual mail and business center designed for the location-independent, expat, and international entrepreneur community. Anyone seeking financial freedom should consider privacypost.io. Their services include virtual mail, a professional business address, privacy trust services, company formation, and a Portugal D7 residency and virtual domicile in the privacy-respecting and income-tax-free state of South Dakota. PrivacyPost.io protects you from third parties, overreaching government agencies, and complicit cloud-based platforms invading your personal, private, and business information. Privacy is freedom of association, expression, commerce, and mobility. Isn't it time you took it a bit more seriously? PrivacyPost.io is your partner in freedom. Go to PrivacyPost.io for more information today. yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. Okay, so Dr. Larson, I've got a story for you. Um, before the show started, we were talking about, you know, this COVID. My brother was um, immunized for chicken pox way, 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 way back when he was a kid, just like everyone else. Uh, he's only three years younger than me. And in 2019, um, he, was, he was a student Mason University came home because he was living with their parents and uh, you know, came home after a long night of studying and everything else, woke up the next day and he looks like a leper. Yeah, he just had spots all over himself. And um, you know, he was like, I, I don't know what happened, I don't know if this is an allergic reaction, like my tongue hurts, everything hurts. He's, he's pulling up his pants, he's like, I think it's everywhere, like he was he was freaking out. So when my father went ahead and drove to the um, they went ahead to him and they were like, well, uh, Ryan, you look like one of the few adults we've had this year that had the chickenpox vaccine and actually managed to still catch chickenpox as an adult. And um, 
I mean, it was one of those one of those fluke situations that that happens. And um, I mean, I just remember after that he became extremely paranoid because chickenpox is an adult. He have a weakened immune system. So you know, a few months later, when COVID started, uh, you know, rolling in, um, he was he was just afraid this was gonna be um, you know like the the end all be all for him. Like if he caught it, he was gonna die. But uh, you got to join a very exclusive club recently. You finally joined the COVID club with the rest of us. That's right. I was the first one in my family to, to get it. I, it's, what's funny, of course, on, so, on Facebook, I posted something like, uh, I feel kind of like a social outcast or social failure because I hadn't had it. I mean, it made me think I'm not going out enough people, seeing people, going out to enough places. And so anyway, of course, you know, karma. Eight days later, I, I, I got a little, seemed like a cold, got tested eventually, uh, found it was COVID, so and spent a day, a week by myself. I failed to get my family infected. So I'm obviously not a very good super spreader. So I'm, cause we're, I was isolated in a car with them for two up. hours. I know. I just, I'm uh, you know, a failure in many ways, I guess a social failure for the most part. I don't know where I got it uh, that no one else got it, but then I couldn't even give it to others. So. I mean, what, what, what use is it if you can't pass along the love of COVID? Um, I mean, it was, uh, I, I found, I found an article probably about a month ago, it was in The Guardian, and it was, catching COVID is not a moral failure. And, and I think it's hilarious that we're at this point. I caught it the first time a year ago. Listeners of the show will remember that because, our, you know, Brian, um, uh, Brian Nichols from The Brian Nichols Show actually had to sub in for me for two episodes because it was that bad. But, you know, when I caught it, I caught it, um, you know, a few weeks after you did. Uh, I caught, you know, the, the Megatron variant or whatever the flavor of the day is. And it was, you know, it, it, it took me out for a few days. Like, it wasn't fun. I knew I immediately had it because I had lost my my taste and everything. But, uh, I mean, the, the biggest problem was, like, I was just completely drained of energy for days. So after the cold symptoms basically came and went, um, you know, it was just it was just really hard to do anything. But, you know, as we were discussing earlier, I think that this is just going to become the common cold. I think that this is just, you know, killed off all its competition. It's like the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. And everything is just going to be like COVID-22, COVID-23, COVID-Godzilla variant, whatever the hell they want to go ahead and call it. I think it's, it's here to stay. And if what I had is an indicator of the future, folks... I'm still alive. You know, the Wuhan tried to kill me, but I'm still here. So, you know, maybe that's a good sign for the rest of us. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's important to think that, realize that there are four other coronaviruses that are endemic that cause common colds. The most like recent the one we horsemen. think. God. Yeah, right. So the most recent one's called OC43, you know, a real exciting name. Uh, that one probably came, you know, they looked at the genetic studies and maybe came in the late 1800s. There were reports at that time of a Russian flu and uh circulating around the world. You know, at that time, we were just naming things when it first was identified. Sort of like this, right? Wuhan or, you know, the Italian variant or South African variant or whatever, right? You know, and now they've gotten away from it because, you know, we don't, we don't be sensitive. Uh, anyway, um, and so it, 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 OC43 caused a lot of problems back then. Probably not as much as this. This has been a pretty virulent, which means kind of more dangerous virus. There's no question about it. I mean, it's been pretty bad. But um, it just is now to the point where you just get that. You don't even know what you have. And, and we, we face variants all the time of OC43. There's not just like one type, but you just don't bother sequencing them because it just doesn't matter. Uh, for one thing, we didn't have the technology to do that you know, even 20 years ago to really successfully do that. But these things happen all the time. You f- the cold's going through the school. It's going through your work. It's going through your family. It's going through town. And you know, people say, oh, yeah, I've got that stomach bug or whatever. I mean, these, we have viruses. We're, we're intimately connected with each other with viruses all the time. And it's absolutely um, expected, I think, that this virus will become a cold of sorts where at some point we'll just stop, we'll even, won't even know what it is. I mean, 
we will probably, because we lived through this, you know, insanity for a couple of years, but you know, 50, 60 years from now, it's not gonna be called, you know, COVID-19. It'll be, you know, SARS-CoV-2, if anyone bothers to sequence it at all. I mean, because assuming things are stay the same as far as therapeutics and such. I mean, we are in like year, year two of the 15 days to flatten the curve. I mean, anything could happen. Anything's possible for sure with this virus. Did you ever think that when you started your show, you, you, you've been doing this for four years now, right? Yes, yeah, since 2018. Did, did you ever think, you know what, I'm, I know I'm going to go ahead and talk about, you know, different options and alternate solutions to get patients the care they need within our draconian medical system. Did you ever think in a million years that you were going to have to walk people through the, the pandemic and everything? Because I've been listening to your show for over the past year off and on. And you're one of the few people that has been talking about this and talking with other experts in a way that didn't make me think that, you know, the, the next phase of Corona was going to be like a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, I don't, I clearly wasn't expecting, I mean, you know, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition, right? I mean, no one expects the, a pandemic or thinks about it That's outside of, you know, the people who that's their job to sort of imagine nightmare scenarios or, you know, uh, Crichton, right, when he's writing his books about superbugs. Um, you know, I started my show because to, to sort of explain to me and to other physicians and to the lay people problems in healthcare, whether that and problems with the delivery system and people who have solutions to, to fix them. And so that's that's was focused my show. It was kind of to get things off my chest. I don't know why you started your show, but for me, it was just a, I had a couple things that. I, yeah. I mean, I thought I had a couple things to say and I thought, you know, maybe a couple dozen people would be interested in hearing, <laughs> hearing about them. Uh, and it's, you know, done very well as far as the show, but certainly never expected the pandemic, but it became, especially the beginning as a physician, I'm an anesthesiologist, so I'm not in any way an infectious disease expert. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a virologist, um, epidemiologist, whatever, There's but I, you know, I people to sleep and, you know, drawing things on their forehead while they're asleep. I don't do that except to really close friends. Oh, um, did that just happen to me a couple times? Uh. <laughs> you must have a really good friend. Yeah, uh, I had trick yeah, actually, care. I didn't get the best. I didn't get the best help. <laughs> well, and I would say too, the joke is not that you don't actually put people to sleep. It's waking them up. That's actually where people pay you for. Put them to sleep. <laughs> anyone can, anyone can put you to sleep. It's waking up. That's where the tricky part is. Um, yeah. So uh, it became a real puzzle, right? It, it from a from a sort of it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Like, why is this happening? How do you, how do, what's, where are we going? What's going on? And uh, it, it was an annoying puzzle uh, to try and figure out, but it was one that it seemed like I could talk to people who knew way more than me. I could learn from them. And I think uh, as a libertarian, it makes it a lot easier to sort of, especially with this disease, which has been just weird. Um, you know, there's definitely partisan lines and what you have to believe. You're able to sort of just live in the middle or live somewhere in the nebulous space and you don't have to have, take your marching orders from, you know, Trump or Biden or, you know, whatever. And so you can, I think, rationally look at things and sort of, you, you at least are not clouded as much as other people. And so it's easier to kind of arrive at the, well, I'll say the correct answers or sort of a more rational approach and, and analysis where you don't have to bring, bring preconceived notions into your, you know, how you're, where the things are going. And so that's made it a lot easier for me. And I'm, I think I'm pretty good at explaining things in layman's terms as well. Uh, I'm a pretty I have to the average American and yeah. you break things down Barney style for me. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I mean, I, I, I have to do this as an anesthesiologist. I have people come in and they're, you know, terrified. I've got five minutes to convince them that I'm going to put them in a medically induced coma and bring them back and they'll be okay. And so I have to explain things 
simply uh, and if, I think effectively to and you know, establish rapport, all those things in just a few minutes. And so I, I mean, I think I'm pretty good at that. And I try and bring that to the show and I try and imagine myself not just talking to physicians, but to also envision that I have a physician listening to me who's like, okay, this is like stupid basic level, but you know, you have the science, you have the details, but you also can explain to someone so they can say, oh, this is how I can explain to my brother or, you know, my cousin so that they will understand because doctors are not always the best. I mean, lingo is sort of every profession has it and we have a ton of it in medicine. And so you have to try and get, avoid that lingo sometimes because it, then you're not helpful in communicating what you want to get across to the average person. I feel like each time I see a doctor on TV, e- even if it's uh, you know somebody like Doctor Oz, for example, I-, I feel like a lot of them in in the age of Fauci, a lot of them are now playing doctor because it used to be. I-, I think the goal, especially for a lot of doctors that went through like you know the infotainment route, whether they were a commentator <laughs> on a news network or whether they were something on daytime television. Their goal was always, I want to be the fun doctor that everyone can come to, like, you know, your, your local, you know, family care provider, and uh, I'm going to break things down easily. Now it's like in, in, in our current times, whenever I see a doctor on TV, they're all playing doctor to out-doctor each other, and it's just complicated as hell. And it, it almost looks like, you know, like two priests, like, you know, discussing like hardcore theology, trying to bash each other. And I think that's been, you know, one, one of those things where it's like growing up, at, at least for me, I'm 27. There were, there were uh, like two things. There, there were like two people you did not question, two people that you universally saw as good, doctors and firefighters. You know, co- cops, I think, were always controversial, you know, wh- whether or not we were in a conflict or something, maybe soldiers and, you know, maybe where you're at, it was more so less antagonistic from from the public, especially during the days of like, you know, the early 9-11 period and everything else. But now it seems like doctors have been somewhat removed from that category, whether by their own doing or whether by the public's doing. And and to a degree, I think it's kind of unfair because it, it creates overgeneralizations. But at the same time, you know, like what you said earlier, it, it's it's been really strange seeing certain doctors say things that even for somebody who's not as educated on the topics as myself and others, you, you kind of look at the stuff and it's like, did, did they get their talking points from the white house? Like, yeah. this, well, doesn't, I mean, this doesn't really jive with me right now. There is no question. There is a performative aspect or an authoritation, uh, authoritative aspect that people have in positions of authority. And I think, you know, as a physician, you are, you know, the health authority uh, with either with a patient or families or, you know, within the hospital structure. And so that is definitely, there's definitely a performance aspect to that. And people take that onto television and radio or wherever. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And it does feel like there's, there's a, you know, there's only so much oxygen in the room and people want to try and be noticed. And I think as physicians, they think the way to get notices, but by, you know, right away coming out and saying, I'm a physician, I'm knowledgeable about this. I have some sort of credentials that make it worth listening to me as opposed to, you know, that, Yokel who just talked to before because they're a radiologist or whatever, you know, they don't have, they, they don't know what I know because I'm, you know, a virologist. Well, the virologist is no epidemiology. So the epidemiologist will try. And so I think there's a credential sort of battle. Um, I've had a real good friend who is actually, he said, it took me a while to realize that you really even a real doctor. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I talked to you. You just seem like kind of like a regular guy. And I don't know if that's a Midwest thing or uh, I mean, I don't try and throw my weight around too much. And so I don't know. I mean, I think you can know stuff and just not, and you can just be comfortable with who you are. And I think there are a lot of doctors who aren't in some ways, you know, in some ways, like anybody new in their career, 
you know, you're not comfortable with who you are. You don't, you are sort of, um, you know, you're not comfortable with your, with your credentials because if you're a first or second year doctor right out of training, you're worried you're going to be questioned. And because you're not as confident later on, that should, you should have that confidence. But I think, um, I, I think that comes through. And I think the problem with physicians right now is absolutely one of their own making because there are ones who are not speaking up as much, as much as they should be against these people who are doing things in a communication aspect that are um, unhelpful and destructive. And the fact that you are shaming people, we knew that back in the eighties, when you're doing that with HIV, we didn't shame people for getting, we were for a little bit while, you know, if, because it was, you know, primarily people who were homosexuals who were, who were transmitting and where the epidemic for AIDS was. And so there's a lot of shaming there. Uh, and it, you know, it was probably, you could say in some ways more preventable, I suppose, than your behavior, I guess, and you know, how you save sex and we, things we, like that. We know we knew so but, little about it. Right. I mean, it, it, but, but now, you know, it's a respiratory virus and the, and the yelling at people and saying you did things wrong or you should be doing, you're vaccinating. It isn't, it is such a poor persuasive technique. Any physician knows this. I mean, you don't berate someone coming in when they're smoking and tell them, you know, you can tell them why they shouldn't be. You can show them laboratory values. You can give them, you know, all the science you want. That's how you convince people. You say, look, this is your decision. This is why I think you should do it. You know me a long time. You know, I don't, you know, BS you, whatever. So this is why you should, you should do it. It's not one where they come in and you just harangue them. And now I realize we don't have personal relationships with people online. Uh, and, but that seems to be the way to score points with your tribe, show you're, you know, you're tough and you're, you really mean it, but it's a really bad way. And it's perceived people who aren't in your camp. You're never going to pull anyone in. I mean, it, I mean, anyone who's trying to convince someone in anything knows this is the wrong way to convince anyone. Right. Mm. Um, and because it's a sort of a form, it's not violence, but it's sort of, you know, it's kind of like a violent way of convincing people and people are going to, if they don't agree with you partially, they're absolutely going to push back and and be hardened to get in their position. I mean, you, you don't expect to be treated in a way other than positive from your doctor. Like I've had, you know, bad experiences and I've had good experiences, but like my worst experience of a doctor is still better than my best experience of like a homeless person asking me for cash. That's that gas station. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's all kind of relative. And I, I joke often, I, I was in the army, so I had TRICARE. So you're not getting the best doctors. You're getting the doctors that mostly, um, you know, printed off a, a doctoral certificate from Google and now they're, you know, the army's paying them. But, um, you know, like I, when I caught, uh, COVID the first time in January of 2021, I was actually out of state. I was, uh, I was in Maryland with my fiance. We had just come back from a trip from Indiana and, uh, we, we caught it. And when I went to the, um, to the hospital in Annapolis, uh, you know, at that point, Earlier, I, I went to just a, a general, like, you know, 24-hour clinic. They went ahead and did a quick scan of me, so, so I also had pneumonia in my left lung, so they sent me to the hospital. And at that point, I'm, I'm texting my parents, which is the last thing I should have done because my mom <laughs> is immediately like, you're going to die. And I was like, I, I, I don't think I'm going to die. Like, I'm in a lot of pain right now, but I think I'm going to live. And uh, the, the entire time, she's like, get hydroxychloroquine, get hydroxychloroquine. And this is when... Uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine yeah. was the ivermectin of the time. That was, you know, that that was everyone's favorite favorite buzzword. And I, I was just like, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that because everyone's gonna think I'm weird. And they're immediately gonna know that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm of a certain political persuasion. But I mean, at one point, she kept calling me while I was in the hospital, and after they checked checked my blood oxygen level and everything, I was being seen by an RN, 
I was just like, um, excuse me. And this isn't my question. This is my parents' question because I'm a sane person. I don't know where this per- I don't know where this woman like landed on things, but I just <laughs> want to be extra cautious. I'm like, can I get a prescription for hydroxychloroquine? And she just looks at me. And then she does something I've never seen somebody in a hospital do. She puts her forehead against the wall and just kind of stands there for a few seconds. Like I couldn't <laughs> tell whether she was laughing or she wanted to yell at me. And then she turned back at me, and she just let out the sigh, like like the judgment sigh you get from people. Women yeah. are especially good at it because it's like throwing daggers at you. Oh, yeah. It's like extra judgment. So then she goes on to explain, we can't give you hydroxychloroquine because in your condition, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, they had never prescribed anyone hydroxychloroquine in that hospital, and they weren't going to uh, you know, prescribe it to me. And at the time, I was like, okay, this makes a ton of sense. I'm not upset about it. The part that upset me was not the fact that she wouldn't give me Trump's miracle drug. The, the part that upset, that upset me was that two, three minutes where I felt like the dumbest person in the room. And I feel like yeah. a lot of people, you know, whether it, it's come to the vaccines or the therapeutics or other alternative methods, it, it's it's turned into this this purity test that has just gotten out of control. And it's, it's that relationship between patient and doctor or, or nurse or whatever. I don't feel like that's ever going back to how it was prior to COVID. Something is very visibly tearing apart. And that's incredibly sad because the one relationship you don't want to mess with is the one between you and whoever's taking care of you in that situation. I'm more optimistic. I think it will, once the tempers kind of uh, simmer down, I think, I think we'll return back to where we are. Um, or where we were, it, it wasn't always the best place, but I think, I, I think the paternalistic aspect of it is always there. And I think some people are just better at it, but you know, the COVID has put a huge, it's put a tremendous strain on physicians and people who are providing care, um, administratively and, and there are some, and the, the thing that is difficult as a physician, and I'm sure it's this case for any professional, when you have people coming in who have no knowledge or generally no knowledge on something, who are making recommendations for how you should take care of something. You know, it's like if you brought your car and like, it's making this funny knocking noise. And then you tell the mechanic, there's seven things you need, they need to check. It's kind of like, well, that's kind of my, you know, that's what I do. You know, I, you don't need to tell me or, you know, give me advice to a lawyer, like how you, your case should be presented. I mean, there, and so it is, there's a tension. I think, you know, obviously the better way is she could have said, well, you know, we haven't prescribed that. We have not seen that has been effective. There have not been any studies that have shown that hydroxychloroquine is effective. And, it is not our policy and it's not my practice to give people things that have shown no evidence to be helpful because if you give something that's not helpful, it could just prevent bringing some harm. And I don't, and you've got pneumonia and I'm worried about you and I don't need to bring something in that might cause some harm. I mean, that'd be a much better way than, you know, right. than the nonverbals where you just kind of are frustrated, but that's someone who's probably burnt out. Maybe she's dealt with a question 75 times. Uh, and so, and you just now for you, it's the first time. And that's always a hard thing as a professional to recall, you know, someone's coming to you and they're asking you like, oh, seriously, you're going to ask me this question. I get to ask this all the time. Uh, but you have to, you have to remember that, yeah, you've experienced it 50 times, but the other person, it's their first time. Right. And yeah. that is a challenging thing with, again, any profession in anesthesia. When Michael Jackson, I don't remember when he passed away. It was like 10 years ago now. Maybe oh man, 50. I was in, dude, I was in. Were you in high school? I wasn't even in high school. I think I was in eighth grade. 
Well, okay, so he okay. I was, was in eighth grade because Transformers Two came out, and I thought that there was you go. The best, I thought that was the best movie in the world, and I watched it three years ago, and that was trash. So well, thanks totally for making me feel really old, Remzo. Um, but so uh, I try. So propofol uh, is the medicine he was getting. He was having a cardiologist give him propofol, which is an, an an IV anesthetic that we use for getting you off to sleep and maintaining sedation. And he was using that to sleep, which is actually not a very did, effective way did, of going to sleep. Do they have insomnia? Uh, I'm assuming so. I, to be honest, I don't. I not look at all the details of why Michael Jackson did it, but I know I would hear he would like sleep for like a day or something. It doesn't give you REM sleep, but anyway, it's not really the point. The point is, is that propofol is a medicine that he used. It's one we use in 99.9% of our anesthetics to go off to sleep because it's a fantastic drug. But he had a cardiologist taking care of him, and I don't know about you, but if someone was under anesthesia for 36 hours and I was the only physician, it's unlikely that I'm going to stay awake and alert to monitor you for 36 hours, right? So, so he got too many, too much died. I would have patients for a long time ask me, oh, what am I getting? Am I getting the Michael Jackson drug? Am I getting propofol? Whatever. <laughs> I mean, we're about this. And it's not, it's not totally an unreasonable question, right? If you're totally uneducated, if you're uneducated about this and you, someone, and you, Hey, that's the same drug that killed Michael Jackson. And some doctor was giving that to him, you know? And so, yeah, it w- there was, there was absolutely a concern for anesthesia that, you know, people get to ask a question. I would get it many, many, many times. And I just had to have a really good answer for it. That was non-judgmental, right? Like most people aren't like super concerned, but they'll kind of like throw a little feeler out. Like, I'm going to see what he says. Maybe I should be a little concerned, right? And so they'd say that. I'd say, well, I mean, he had a cardiologist watching over him. And, not, and so I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't want an anesthesiologist doing my heart cath any more than I wanted a cardiologist doing my anesthesia. And people are like, okay. And they accept that, and then we just move on. But you, know, you have to have, but you have to, you have to be respectful for what someone's asking because you don't know what their experience are. Maybe they had a family member who died in anesthesia. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that in a few minutes. So... That is the empathy you have to have, and that is what has been severely lacking, and I think is partly a reflection of burnout, corporatization of medicine. There are all sorts of reasons that physicians are, are, cha- are challenged with this, but they're not looking good on social media. I think most people have pretty good re- interactions with their physician, and so I think that's where you build up the trust again. They may not trust people online, which maybe that's okay, <laughs> but I, I think the public health authorities, that is going to be one that is going to be forever damaged for a couple generations, I think. Because that is when you never develop a personal relationship with, you know, no one's going to like hang out with Anthony Fauci and get a personal relationship and trust with this guy or any of your county health directors or whoever. Uh, these are people just, you know, throwing down edicts and they look like fools and they've had really bad communication. And I don't know how you repair that. I mean, I gave a little speech in my last show where I think the next person, what they need to say to try and rebuild that trust. But I think it's, I think that's going to be one that's going to be really hard to build back up. You mentioned something a moment ago, which is the online behaviors of certain people. And um, I, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that works in digital marketing and social media. As much as I might bitch about it, like it's it's how I pay the bills. So it's 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 a it's a love hate relationship I have. But I, I almost feel like we're we're getting to the point where you know everyone is talking about you know the the degrees of which we're going to allow certain speech online. I almost feel like if I was if, if, if I was a doctor and I was dealing with a bunch of younger new doctors, one of the first things I would tell them is, you know, like if you want to establish your reputation and everything else, like focus on your immediate community, the people you're working with, your patients, stay off social media because like there were, uh, when, when Sanjay Gupta went on Joe Rogan a few months ago and it turned into that whole situation 
you know, like Sanjay Gupta was the one person at CNN. I was like, as much as I dislike CNN, I was like, this guy does not fuck around. But after the fact, I mean, the, the guy just, he, he just tore himself down. And now what you see is you see a bunch of these other blue checkmark doctors. And I don't know what they study. I mean, they could be dentists for all I know. But sure, they're yeah. just, but they're just like getting into fights with people. And it's like, if I, if I lived near you, and I saw you treating people online this way. And let's say, you know, my insurance is like, here's your new primary care person. You're the last person I'm going to want to talk to. At least, <laughs> at least, you know, give me the opportunity not to like you because you weren't able to treat me. Don't ruin it on the offset because I saw you getting into fights of people online. I almost feel, and I, I think it's going to be like this way for many industries, you know, teachers, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here in Milwaukee, MPS. There are a lot of, um, you know, uh, Milwaukee public schools teachers who have gotten in trouble for the things that they've said on Twitter, especially during, uh, you know, union fights and things like that. And it's like this for any industry, but, you know, as, as an outsider looking in, I don't think doctors need Twitter for, for the most part, especially if they're going to do it to just slam on people. I'm a doctor. You're a freaking moron. Shut up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, so I think you're right in part. I think you have to be very mindful about when you're interacting with people on social media as a professional, because that is how you're going to be. Um, you have to recognize that people are going to, who agree with you and don't disagree and don't agree with you, how they're going to perceive you. And, and again, I think it comes down to empathy and it comes down to being respectful. Maybe this is just my Midwestern ish is Midwestern ishness that is kind of coming through. But I think you have to be, you have to have some humility because, I mean, if there's one thing that medicine teaches you or should teach you is humility because you are wrong a lot. You know, a diagnosis you're certain of, turns out it wasn't. It was, you know, there, we always have the thing, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, you know, assume it's a horse, not a zebra. But sometimes it is a zebra, so you have to have that in mind, right? And I think it is very important to recognize that you might be wrong. And that has been one of the you know, big problems with a lot of the people on social media who are physicians who are, you know, on med Twitter who are just going after people. Because they won't once, especially once you be treating people poorly, you're sort of committed to that line of you know line of uh, attack. It's like you have to save face, so you might as well just double down on right. Already I mean, I've never, leader. yes, absolutely, and I've never actually been a huge fan of San, Sanjay Gupta because I don't think, um, <clears throat> I think he's always been sort of establishment e, <laughs> and so um, I've not really found his analyses oftentimes that um, helpful. I mean, at times he is pretty good. And I, I think he also kind of lacks humility in some ways, but you know, here's an unfair comment. He's a neurosurgeon. <laughs> so I kind of figured they, that sort of kind of goes far over the course, but I mean, all physicians can be sort of that way in general, but he's, he's better than most. And I agree with you that he's, but there are the people who are attacking. I, I think you just have to have the right online presence. Um, you know, there are definitely the docs who are out there just selling themselves, trying to get fame and trying to get branding, but you have to be mindful of what you're trying to brand. Cause if you are trying to brand an, adversarial sort of character that you're, you're really boxing yourself in what you can do later. You're going to limit your potential for employment. You're going to limit your potential for uh, patients. And, uh, you know, you may find a niche that's going to work for you in the, you know, social Twitter sphere, but that niche may disappear too. And then you may find yourself in a, in a world of hurt. Like if you were hundred percent convinced that COVID was going to be kill hundred million Americans, well, now you're looking pretty silly, and now you're the, the people who are going to listen to you are a lot smaller. And so you just have to be mindful of that, I think. And so, again, I think you just need to be humble 
not attack people and just be reasonable. I, it's not that hard. You're not going to generate as many clicks. You're not going to get as many followers that way. But I think that's it. I think it's, you should, it's important for physicians to be engaged online, but it's important to have normal, rational people engaged not online who are physicians. And I think, so I think it really is important for physicians to be on that, but I think you need to be, you need to think about how you're portraying yourself. Uh, some people are always going to misconstrue, but for the most part, if you're seen as a rational person who is empathetic and reasonable, I think people will generally be okay with you if you're wrong, you know, especially if you say, yeah, you know what, I was, I thought this and it turns out I was wrong. People are okay with that. They're always saying in medicine, you know, if you make mistakes, it's okay. No one expects people to be perfect except physicians. They often beat themselves up when they make a mistake, but you have to be, you know, admit that you're wrong and be hum humble and say, you know, I didn't know. I didn't see this diagnosis or whatever. It seemed unlikely. I missed it. But, you know, that's what you have to, that's a hard balance for any human being, right? No one wants to be wrong. That's why marriages, you know, break up. There are all sorts of problems, right? So anyway. Yeah. And I mean, it's what, what's just really heartbreaking is how so much of it has just been driven by partisanship. Uh, when, when I got back from Las Vegas um, and immediately caught COVID again, like, you know, I, I went to, um, I, I went, I went to an Aurora clinic to go get tested and then everything. And I immediately knew that the nurse who was testing me and everything, I immediately knew where she was on, on the political scale. I, I had, I had just like in her eyes, I might as well have said that I like kicked a baby in the face. Like, wh why did you go there? I'm like, why are you asking me? Why did I go there in that tone? It's not like, Oh, why did you go? Did you, you know, were you doing something fun? I'm like, I went there because I went there. Like it was, it was very uncomfortable and antagonistic for me. And what made it worse was that at one point, oh, so she fucked up the test. So she swabbed me, but she did something wrong with the machine. So she had to come back and like pick my brain a second time. So I was kind of pissed. And I think she <laughs> felt kind of embarrassed because it was her fault. But she sits down next to me while we're waiting the 15 minutes to get my results. And she's just, you know, like giving me this, this whole like, I consider just pure communist propaganda. We should all be wearing masks and air travel needs to be shut down again. And I'm just like, I didn't even want this conversation. I have said three I'm sick, by the way. <laughs> yeah, like I have said three words to you and you've just been a jerk this entire time, lady. But like I, I immediately kind of knew that. And, um, you know, that, that was, that was a situation where I was just like, I, I gotta, I, I gotta get out of here and I don't ever want to deal with her again. But like, I don't want what, what, what kind of bothers me about the climate that we're in is that we see a lot of parallel economies forming up. It's like, I want to find the conservative version of this or the lib or the right. ultra woke version of this. And I, the last place I ever want to consider that is when dealing with healthcare. Because, like, I don't want to have to worry about whether or not, oh, I hope my doctor votes a certain way. Like, that would be, that, that would be terrible. Because then, you know, it's like a lot, I'm, I'm, I'm a UFC fan. And, um, you know, I, I've got some people who were never into MMA sports and stuff like that. And there's a fighter named Colby Covington. Colby Covington is a very open uh, you know, conservative and Trump liked him and everything else. So immediately, what do conservatives love? Conservatives love a B-list celebrity. So everyone was like, oh, he's just like this great fighter. And I'm like, actually, he's not. Actually, he kind of sucks compared to the others on the roster. No. And I'm like, you've never seen a fight, have you? So in that situation, much like other things, it's like they didn't like him. They didn't, quote, like him because he was this great fighter. They liked him because he was another celebrity type person 
who happened to be open and very public about his political beliefs, and then bam, in the eyes of many people who have never watched him fight or anything else, oh, this guy's a great fighter. That's the last thing I want to do with a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I yeah, absolutely. Right. Like you, you see this too in like in uh, media. You see, what's that? I don't remember her name. Is Joy something or other? She had some like Trump dress she wore. Some Joy Villa. Yeah. There you go. I mean, yeah. you know, suddenly she was like super popular. I mean, there. You know, you're in entertainment. Obviously, you're trying to entertain people and trying to get gather followers and and fame. And so, you know, you, uh, political views are certainly part of the thing, I guess, to get you fame, but it's obviously a double-edged sword, right? So yeah, I mean, it's totally inappropriate for people to be shaming. It has been toxic in the hospitals. It has been a toxic environment with this pandemic. And I think that is largely because the people at the top, and I say that the people in the federal government have made this a political um, topic, which no, usually health issues are not political. I mean, that is the nature of Washington, D.C., but by by the um, people within the CDC, the FDA, they're political creatures, and they have absolutely made this a political thing. And you, because they have access to the media, they could they could have back when Trump was president, have made a point of saying made a point of saying it's not a this is not a political thing. This is not you know. But they, you know, they were feeding this to the the media that they were that this is a you know if only Trump wasn't president, this would be a problem. And and they just wanted. I suppose they wanted their own fame. They were sort of working to their tribe. They probably thought there was a political advantage to it as well. I, I don't know. I mean, but they were okay with it being a political thing. I and mean, they could, you could have shut this down. And, you know, Fauci, I mean, he's worked for Republicans and Democrats. It's kind of puzzling to me that I he's think people forget that, this. like, you know, Trump brought him on stage. Yeah. Trump was the one giving him a platform. It's it's one of the reasons why, you know, like, I've got some friends who are like, I want him to run for president. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not. Like he's the guy who gave us Fauci, like it, and he he yeah. he politicized it too. He politicized Fauci as well. I mean, he's just as he's just as responsible for that as anybody, yeah. right? So I don't know. I mean, that's been and and once that started, it was just like a snowball. I don't know. It hasn't been able to stop. But I think now we're kind of getting to the point where now that all the people who are doing the right thing are still getting infected, you know, been vaccinated, vaccinated, boosted, and stuff, and they recognize that it's endemic disease. There's no way to stop it. Um, maybe now we're going to get to the more sane, rational part, but it's been you know two years of destruction unfortunately i i don't know about this part so cor- correct me if i'm wrong or you know definitely jump in but um i, I was having a beer of someone um like a month ago probably uh you know before before wuhan part two decided to jump into my life and um you know we we were talking about a, a similar conversation like this and he was curious as to whether or not you're going to see less conservatives or less people who are typically right of center people that are more you know questionable of authority these days if we're going to see less of them go into the medical field kind of like what happened when you know everyone was kind of going after the cops the last couple years you had less people throughout the country um you know join the police force in their community so he was wondering i wonder if because of everything that's happened you're going to have less people that are willing to you know experiment and question the narratives and be open about their real thoughts when it goes against you know what what the public idea is or if you're still going to get those people who want to be a doctor to actually go and try and be a doctor what are your thoughts on that yeah well i don't know i mean that's a good 
good question. I, I tend to think it's not going to have a huge effect on things. Um, you know, when in my private conversation, now I'm in Grand Rapids, so this is a fairly conservative part of the state of Michigan. Um, and I think, so my, but I work on the, I'm on the, a board member on the Michigan State Medical Society. So I, I interact with physicians from all over the state. So I have kind of general feel, sort of what people are like. Um, Michigan, for those who are not familiar, is pretty blue, purple state. You know, we're probably lean slightly democratic if you um, want to look from the liberal conservative sort of standpoint. Uh, so my experience, at least in my community, is that most of the physicians are are, are not are, are pretty okay with COVID. I mean, well, that's what's the right way of putting it. I, I think they're they will question a lot of what's the the narrative. And so I think they're, but they're not outspoken about it, but most of them, you know, I know plenty who, you know, they come up to me and ask me, because now I've sort of become an unofficial expert on COVID because I had so many discussions with people and they'll ask me about vaccination boosting and those sorts of things. And, um, you know, most, there are a lot of people who are resistant to sort of the narrative. And so I don't, th- and I don't feel like the, the, the impression that they're discouraged from going into it. I think generally speaking, most medical students, in my experience, are very, very liberal. Uh, that's been the case for as long as I can remember, but I still find the certain, the, the, uh, the people later, uh, the other physician where they're out of their training are not quite so liberal. And I don't know, that's probably just a natural progression that people have in life. And so I don't know that it's going to change things a whole lot. I don't, you know, I don't think we're going to know. I, I just don't, I guess I don't really think it's going to change a lot. I think people are, I think Americans are pretty much Americans. And so I think they're going to resist things and, you know, there'll be people who will look at this and five years from now, they'll, They'll be the one saying, well, I knew all along it was kind of BS. You know, I didn't really come out a bit against it, but it was clear that masking wasn't really going to do anything. But, you know, we had nothing else or it just wasn't worth rocking the boat. It's just wearing a mask or something. Or I really thought it was a bad idea and I recommended it against my family and my kids and things like that. And But, you know, there's only so much you could do because the, you know, the governor says whatever, or the school superintendent. So there'll be a lot of people who have who have stories about how they were resisting when they really weren't. But I think... I think the uh, the nature of physicians won't change a whole lot, except they're going to be more online. I mean, I think there's definitely branding and things like that. So, I don't know. I that's probably not a very that's probably not a very good answer, but it, it's because I think you just you just don't know. Yeah, and, and I think it's like this with, um, with with any industry. I mean, I, I think a survey of like most American lawyers showed that. Well, surprise, surprise for a lot of folks, a lot of American lawyers are you know left of center. But and you know I, I forgot who it was talking about. It was like Tucker Carlson. It's like you can't trust these lawyers. They they all suddenly kicked out all the conservative lawyers, and now it's just all liberal lawyers. And somebody actually did a study. They're like, actually no, it's like it's historically been that. Yeah, it, it's just how people naturally drift. But in, in terms of like a significant drift, I mean, it's um, I I don't I I kind of agree with you. I don't think it's going to be that substantial. I think the the people that were already kind of on a set path with their beliefs and what they wanted to do career wise, I don't think this was going to get in the way of it. I think the the biggest thing is you know going to be how how, do, how are they going to interact with patients that now probably have a, a deeper mistrust than uh, than before. And I mean, I, I I worked in I worked in media for a while before coming to my current job, and it's like you know, doc, in in the way that that people might be upset with certain doctors and uh, medical professionals. It's nowhere near the, the distrust for people 
that they have in like journalists and stuff like that. Like, yeah. you know, the, the media has managed to just burn its own reputation to the ground. It's like that Simpsons meme. It's like, are the children wrong or am I wrong? The children are wrong. And it's like that, that's how it was. So, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, but before, before this gets any worse, that enough people are like, you know what, maybe, maybe getting into fights with potential patients on Twitter is not the, the best way to go ahead and convey my thoughts on this issue. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, and I think it ultimately the, people are going to be more careful about what they put out there. And I think that that's definitely, been, I mean, one thing that has definitely happened is that if you're a physician who has a, a views that are not with a, the dominant narrative, that you're definitely putting yourself out there and a little at risk. And so I think, you know, people are going to think twice about doing that because there's some pretty severe um, consequences sometimes. And we've seen people fired from their jobs for, having, I think, a pretty rational approach to, you know, the, the disease. And, and I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think there's – people are just going to be probably more hesitant about being out there. And that's – maybe that's okay. I don't know. In, in a way, I kind of wish that would happen. But at the same time, it's like, you know, there, it's, it, 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 it's not an even scale. Like, there are going to be pros and cons to each one. I mean, you know, there there were many doctors where it's like the more outspoken they were, the more they were actually able to, you know, counteract a lot of bad narratives that were being put out there. But then, you know, it's like not every doctor that shows up on your favorite news network is going to necessarily be someone that is uh, is is immediately interested in, in helping you. Maybe they want to help themselves more. I don't know. I mean, it's just it, it's the double edged sword that comes with all of this, as you said. I think you know when it looks when you look back into why I went into medicine. I went into medicine because I was interested in caring for people and for, and the, and the science of it. I mean, I think I enjoyed science. I enjoyed um, math and physics and um, biology. I thought, and I, I generally like people. I think they're, you know, I like helping people. And so, if you talk to physicians, I mean, eighty. The most recent survey I saw is like ninety percent of physicians. The number one reason, number one satisfier for them in their work, is as patients. I mean, so that's why people are are in the business. And so I don't know that you're going to take a lot of the other stuff away. It's going to shift that. That's still going to be the primary driver for people getting into medicine and, and staying in medicine. The more you separate physicians from their patients, the more burnout you're going to get, the more less physicians, less satisfaction you get with physicians. And so still, as long as you have that relationship, that's what's going to keep people in medicine and what's going to drive them to, to go into it. Um, and certainly stay in it. And so I, I, you know, again, that is the main reason people are, people do medicine, do medicine. Now the diff, there are different ways to help people. You know, primary care physicians help people differently than a surgeon or an anesthesiologist or a radiologist, right? We all have different ways of helping our patients, but that's generally why we're in the, in the business. Um, there's all the other reasons, you know, status, lifestyle, um, you know, pay some pay work hours, which maybe is not a positive things sometimes, but those are all things that are involved with it. But the number one reason that people continue doing it is because of the patients. And, and that's not it. I think that's going to keep people in the business and to keep people coming in the business too. Well, I, I certainly hope, uh, things get better. I mean, everything has to get better at, at some point. I think I'm, you know, as, as much of a pessimistic asshole as I come across sometimes. Uh, ultimately, I, I do want to be optimistic, if not to, you know, at least help myself go to sleep at night, at least because, you know, it's it's better than just being doom and gloom all the time. And I, I you know, I, I agree with you. Like, even the doctors that I had throughout my life who I was not the biggest fan of sometimes, I, I never felt that they didn't 
go into it for the right reasons. And I'm hoping that, you know, the industry as a whole, like other industries, will be able to course correct over time as we, you know, fade fade, fade away from this two-year nightmare we've we've encountered. Uh, Dr. Larson, I've, I've really deeply enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for being willing to reschedule with me a dozen times and everything. If people want to go ahead and uh, subscribe to your show on the We Are Libertarians Network and everything else, how could they do so? Well, you go to the paradox, and that's P-R-A-D-O-C-S. I thought that was a very clever pun because uh, I talk to another doc usually. But it turns out that's like, you know, I talk to people like, oh, yeah, that's what I named my boat or whatever. So, <laughs> so, it's, so, it's, uh, so it is the Paradox Podcast with Eric Larson. I think there's another Paradox Podcast that was started and, you know, ended at some point. And so make sure you get the one. It's got the weird we libertarian tag in the corner. We don't talk about them yet. I don't know who they are, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you can go to the website at theparadox.com. There you can get show notes. Uh, you know, if you want to try and get a feel for what the show's like. I think I'd recommend a couple of shows. Um, episode 150 is a really good one. I'm at 159 now. I just released today. So episode 150 is really good. It's where I talk to a former healthcare broker and he talks about what the industry is really like and, and why healthcare, health insurance especially, is a really bad way of delivering care and it's really expensive and why they don't try and keep costs down, which it's paradoxical, right? You think that Insurance companies are in tension with hospitals and hospitals want to raise prices because, you know, they want to get as much money as they can. Insurance companies want to keep prices down because they want to keep the costs down. And it turns out they actually work in concert, and which is, makes sense because that's why healthcare costs are going up so much. So anyway, it's a really good explanation. And so I think episode 150 is a great one. Uh, a bunch of COVID ones. If, I think episode 143 where I did with uh, Dave Graham where we talk about um, how we are so, 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 so right about COVID when we talked to Vic in April of 2020 and it turns out everything... <laughs> pretty much came true. And so um, that's a good one. I think episode two, where I talked to my physician, personal physician, who's a direct primary care doc, if you want interested in different ways of your primary care. So that's the paradox.com slash zero zero two. And uh, she talks about why she left traditional medicine and went into start her own practice doing direct primary care. And there are a bunch of other things too. I mean, there's all sorts of things in the, the industry as well. So um, that's a good way to get your feet wet, I guess, checking those out. And folks, I'll go ahead and link to everything in the show notes today. Dr. Larson, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Hey, folks, it costs you nothing, but it means everything to me. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play. Wherever you're listening to the show across Al Gore's amazing internet, it, it takes you a few seconds, and it means so much for me. So that way we can go ahead and get conversations like this out to the world. As always, I'm Rapsa W. Martinez. Be safe, be good, good night. Good night.